Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I just want to take the time to thank all of you for all your uh, letters and emails. Just to share with you how crazy this podcast has been. Uh, I, I, I don't even know how to let you know this because I think I'm giving away too much information. But my emails have gone up 5,000% of what they've been before. I mean, the, the letters and the, the things that you all send me are just incredible. And they're so inspirational to me, uh, to let me know that you like it and you like what we're presenting to you and you think it's valuable. And that's all I ever wanted. So I, again, I'm so, so grateful, except I'm not grateful for my inbox because I am never going to get through them in the time that I need to get through them. But I will try and I will answer every single thing that anybody writes to me. I just don't know if I'll answer it by the time I'm the age of my guest today, who I am very excited to have here, uh, Monty Hall, who is a big, big part of my life. And it's a departure from the kind of artist that I normally sit down here with. But since I feel like this kindred spirit to him. And as I share the story of the six degrees of separation, I look across from you and my heart is not heavy because of sadness. My heart is heavy because of love, because Monty Hall brought love into my home. 
And for those of you who don't know that much about me, my dad passed away when I was four. And I grew up with my mom and my sister in a small house in Longmeadow, Massachusetts. And it's hard to believe that 30, 40, 50 years later, I get to sit across from somebody who took away the pain and the sadness that we were going through when we would sit down and watch Let's Make a Deal together. And probably it was free therapy because watching Let's Make a Deal was kind of like being at the division of motor vehicles. You sort of look around you, you look at the people, and you say, Jesus, look at these freaks. These people are weird. And then five minutes later in line, you look up from your paperwork, you look around, and you realize there's ten people looking at you. And you're wondering if they're saying about you, oh, God, look at that freak with the paperwork. And it was the kind of show, Let's Make a Deal, that was unlike any show that I'd ever experienced in my life and as a young person. Because these people came to the show dressed in costumes with colors not found in nature. I mean, they were dressed as everything from the Statue of Liberty to a animated character to a toaster. They would have things in their bags like hard-boiled eggs, toast, <laughs> a, a wrench, just at the hope that Monty would come up to them and say... I'll give you $100 for a hard-boiled egg. <laughs> I'll give you 200 for a wrench. Although he never did say, I'll give you 500 for your firstborn child. When you're going through something in your household that's out of your control, and you're a young kid and you're thrust into it, there's really no place to turn you can't always count on that your parents are going to have the emotional tools in their toolbox to be able to help you through it. So one of the things that I felt that my mom felt would help us was the gift of laughter and the gift of looking at the people in the world and saying, hey, you know, there's things out there that are crazy. There's things out there that they're unbelievable and there's this one huggable and lovable and wonderful man that you feel like is coming into your house every day and you feel he's sitting there with you and he's taking away your pain and giving you entertainment and I just want to say that I realize as Monty Hall is sitting across from me that Here's a man that I've never met before that was as big a part of my life as many of my family members, many of my aunts and uncles and friends. Yet, 
I never got to tell him how much he meant to me. I never got to thank him for all the joy he brought to me and my family. And I never got to revere him and honor him for the pain that he took away and the happiness that he brought to us. So normally there's some kind of thing that ties together here. But I think the main thing I just want to say is that as you're watching your television programs and as you're watching your entertainment, sometimes you don't realize how valuable it is in your life. Sometimes you don't realize how important it is, this entertainment world that we're in and how critical it is to shaping you as a person and helping you get past the difficulties in your life. So if there is a show that you love that means something to you and you're going through something tough right now, I hope for you what I have experienced for myself right now and I'm about to experience that one day you'll be able to sit down face to face and meet a person that brought so much joy into your life as Monty Hall brought into mine. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with buried cats and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. This is a great day for me. This is wonderful, and it will be a great day for you. I am here with a guy who is a legend, a man who has done more shows than anyone I know combined incredible incredible career so i'm going to give him a proper introduction which will probably mean that he will be taken out of here on a stretcher after this introduction because it is so long monty hall my guest today was born in winnipeg canada he's a guy who performed at college musicals and dramatic productions and served as an mc in canadian army shows during the war when he was elected president of the student body he moved to Toronto, where he resumed his career as an actor, singer, MC, and sportscaster. And in 1955, he went on to New York to do a five-year run of NBC's show Monitor. In 1960, he became the MC of CBS's Video Village, which brought him to Hollywood. It was in Hollywood while doing the show that his career really, really began, as he sold the first production that he ever created with his partner, Your First Impression. And he sold that to NBC. This was followed by his next package, The Mother Load, Let's Make a Deal, 
which he sold and ran from January 1964 to August of 1986. Incredible. His next program, Split Second, started in syndication in 1986, and in 1990, he also returned again to Let's Make a Deal for another cycle. In all, get this, 4,700 episodes of Let's Make a Deal were broadcast and went into syndication. But not only that, he also headlined his own shows at the Sahara Hotel in Las Vegas and starred in his own variety show and specials at the ABC network. In 73, he was honored by having his star placed on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. He's done numerous, numerous appearances on television and guest starred on iconic shows like Love American Style, The Flip Wilson Show, The Dean Martin Show, Love Boat, Providence, and several other half-hour comedies. In recent years, his charitable and philanthropic activities have brought him over 500 awards. In 1975, he was elected president of Variety Clubs International, the world's largest children's charity. In 77, he became chairman of the board and in 81 was honored with the lifetime title of international chairman. In 83, he received the prestigious Variety Clubs International Humanitarian Award. He has received three honorary doctorates from the University of Manitoba, Haifa University, and Hahnemann Medical College in Philadelphia. He's a man who has children's wings named for him at many hospitals, including UCLA Medical Center, Mount Sinai in Toronto, and Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. He's a man who has streets named for him in Cathedral City, California, and Winnipeg. The government of Canada bestowed on him the highest award that Canada can offer, the prestigious Order of Canada for his humanitarian works in Canada and other nations of the world. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to introduce the man, the myth, the legend, about to celebrate his 93rd birthday, Monty Hall. Am I really that old? <laughs> How does it feel to be 93? Well, I tell you, it feels so different than being 92. <laughs> to tell you the truth, uh, you know, it's it's a number. It's a number that I that frightens me when I think about it. But I'm living like I'm a 50 year old, but I really know in my heart that I'm 93. But it's it's been a wonderful life, a terrific life. You know, I'm living like a 93 year old right now. Well, start doing the kind of work that I did, and you'll age slowly. It's fascinating, you know. When I look across from you, it's like you're like you're you're just I, I, you don't even have a wrinkle on your face. It's like unbelievable. Yeah, but there's a painting of me upstairs in my attic. <laughs> That's 120 years old. <laughs> this is fascinating for me because when sometimes I think about my own mortality because I'm you know I'm past the halfway mark in my life. I think. And I wonder, like, how many years left do I have to be productive and, and be excited about things and, and be able to take medication and have sex? And, uh, and I look across from you and I realize that I've got a lot of time left. Well, you, don't, you shouldn't think about it as a number or an age is on. When you get up in the morning, don't say, I've got so many years left. You get up in the morning and say, i got another day. 
And I used to I used to walk outside to get the morning paper, and I'd look up to the sky and I'd say, "Thank you, God, for another day." And he was good to me, or she was good to me. <laughs> and I had another day and another day of productivity. Really? It's and incredible. living and enjoying. Well, it appears that way. It appears like you are enjoying yourself, and this is so uh, great. So let's. Uh, normally what I like to do is I like to go way, way back to start. So take me to where you were, what kind of surroundings you grew up in, your family life, sometime before that first moment that came into your mind, I'd like to be in the entertainment business. Oh, and what well, was the thing that happened? A lot of life before that happened, a lot of life. I was born, as you said, in Winnipeg, Canada, in a family that was, had, was just struggling to make a living. My father tried very hard to make a living during the Depression. My mother had to go out and work for a while but when my father was ill. And uh, it was a family that had to, uh, had to bite the bullet an awful lot. But we managed, because of a lot of love in the family, to, to persevere. And then I was very sick as a child. I had a terrible scalding accident, and then I had double pneumonia. And they'd given me up for, well, they, they gave me up. But You the, said a scalding accident. Yes, I, I was a uh, kitchen accident with boiling soup. Don't, let's not get into it. But it was bad. And I survived it, although I was in bandages for a month. They fed me through straws for a month. And then I recovered. I was so weak that I got double pneumonia, and they put me in oxygen tents and and then the doctor said to my parents, he has been so ravaged by these illnesses that he don't expect him to live to the age of 20. So at the age of 20, I called the doctor, <laughs> but he was dead. <laughs> and so every decade after that, and my 30th, 40th, 50th, 67th, every, every decade, I stopped and say to myself, my goodness, I made it through another decade, another 10 years, another five years, another year. How many doctors have you outlived? All of them. <laughs> I have to go recruit new doctors all the time. No, it was it was a very tough a tough youth uh, because of all the illnesses. I was homeschooled by my mother, who was a former teacher, so that when I did finally go back to school, they they didn't know what to do with me. They accelerated me. I was so far ahead of the other students because of the homeschooling that I graduated high school at fourteen. I was small. I was short. I was fourteen years old, and. Uh, there was no, we had no money to go to, to college, so I went to work at my father's butcher shop as a delivery boy at the age of 14. I think that saved my life because being so weak and ravaged that working on that bicycle, delivering parcels to sub-zero weather and so on, built me up physically. And I think that contributed to the fact that I, I, could, I could survive. And we uh, I, I raised enough money for me to go back to one year of college, and I dropped out, and then I was working in a clothing wholesale, and uh, a man who had a manufacturing business across the road from the wholesale came in one day to do business with my boss. He saw me washing the floors. And he said, I, he later said, I think I know who that kid is. He looks familiar to me. So I asked the boss who it was, and I told him. So he went to, he saw my father later that day, and he said, you know, I saw Monty washing floors. And the wholesale said, what is he doing washing floors? Why shouldn't he be at school? And my father said, well, we ran out of funds. And he said, does he want to go back to college? If so, tell him to come and see me tomorrow. This man was only 29 years old. 29 years old. He had been left this business by his father. He was a man about town. And uh, not considered an outstanding citizen because he was always flouting. He was always around town with different 
people, different parties. And no one expected him to be the kind of person that would take a look at a youngster and say, I want to help him at the age of 29. So I went to see him the next day and he said, if you want to go back to college, I'll give you the money. But you have to go by my rules. You can't be a dilettante. You have to get a B-plus average or better. And I want you to see your report card every month. You must never tell anybody where the money came from. you got to promise to do this for somebody else someday. I mean, all these rules from a 29-year-old man. And I lived with those rules, and I obeyed them, and I did it. I only broke one rule. Years later, when I wrote my book, I dedicated it to him, and I said, I broke one rule. I had to tell the world who gave me the money. Remember, he told me to keep it a secret. I didn't. I wanted the world to know what a wonderful person he was. And because of him, I went back to college, and I got my Bachelor of Science degree, and uh, I was student body president. I had a, a great career. I was a five-letter man in athletics. I'm starring in all the college productions. What a life I had at college. But uh, Why do you think that 29-year-old man who had money and could give money to any single kid in that whole area. What do you think it was about you that he wanted to give that money to you? Well, Barry, years later, when I was with him, uh, I, I said to him, his name is Max Freed. I said, Max, why did you do this for me? Why did you choose me? He said, I don't know. I, I saw something in you. Maybe I saw something in you that I saw something in myself in you that I should have done. I should have gone to college. And I wanted to do something for somebody, give a kid a chance. And uh, and he he vicariously lived his my life and his life together all through the years. So much so that when I went to see him in Winnipeg when he was 99 years old, I heard he was ill in a retirement home. And I went up to see him and was sitting alone with him. And he was 99% blind and deaf. And I had to reach very close to him and talk very loud in his ear. And at one point I said to him, Max, I said, you gave me a life. And he looked up and he says, no, Monty, he says, you gave me a life. Because he lived vicariously. It was everything that I accomplished was something that he took to his heart too. And uh, we this, this bond we had between us all, all our lives. I only met him on a couple of occasions because he lived in Florida and Canada. And I saw him in Winnipeg uh, many, many years later. And I think I went up there, and I, I think it must have been my 50th birthday or something like that, many, many years ago. And then I saw him one other time, and then the last time I saw him when I saw him was 99. It's a great story, but it's also an inspiration story because because of his investment in me, I managed to do such wonderful things for other people. So it's what is what are the expression? Pay it forward, do it for somebody. Else. I don't know what they said, but I, I know that by his investment in me, a lot of people benefited, and that's the way it should be. Incredible story. So tell me what your first moment was or inspiration to be in show business. My mother was an actress, and she was acting in local productions in Winnipeg, and I acted in some of her little little theater productions. I didn't have too many speaking lines. I remember I was about six or seven years old, and my first I was on a stage, and I sat at the end of a table, and she said, you have no lines, no words, just sit there and smile, and don't ask any questions, just sit there. That was my first performance. <laughs> I had no lines, no residuals, <laughs> but I, I loved what I was doing. And then when in high school, I started doing some acting in high school, but it was at college when I auditioned and got the lead in a college musical. 
And the director of that musical also was a television, rather, no one knows he's radio. He's a radio producer on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, and he hired me to do a dramatic role while I was at college. And that opened up a lot of gates for me because then I, because of that, I got a job at a radio station working nights for the few years while I was going to college. It helped me a bit. And of course, the Army show was a great thing. The Army show was the best testing ground you can imagine because in the Army show, Explain to our audience what an army show is. Well, it was a unit that went around to all the camps, entertaining the Navy camps, the Air Force camps, the Army camps, and you put on shows for the troops. And in the show, I was the MC, and I sang, and I acted, and I did one-liners, I did blackout sketches, burlesque stuff. It was a great training, stage training for me. And uh, that helped me when I went into television, because... Being able to stand up there on the stage in front of a thousand troops to perform without a script is great training for you. And uh, while I was at the radio station, working at nights and going to college in the daytime, when I graduated, I went to work at the radio station full time. And then one day my boss called me in and he said, here's a map of Toronto. I marked off where all the radio stations are. And he handed me the map. I said, what's that mean? He said, you should go. I said, am I fired? No, 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 you're not fired at all. We love you here, but if you stay here, you're going to end up like all these old geezers. They're not going anywhere. You are going somewhere, but you're not going to do it in this small city. You've got to go to the major city of Toronto. So I went home and said to my folks that night, I'm going to Toronto. And my mother said, do you have a job? I said, no. She said, well, how, how can you go? I said, I know my boss told me to go, so I'm going. And I went. And that started a whole new career in Toronto. How old were you then? I was 24 years old. Got it. So you were living at home until you were 24, and now your first time you're going to a city and you're getting an apartment and you're trying to make it. It wasn't an apartment. It was a room in a rooming house is what it was. But uh, I, I, after a while, I, I, I auditioned at a few stages. I got a job, and uh, now I found myself making $40 a week and uh, living on 20 and sending 20 home. <laughs> And uh, that's where I met Marilyn. Uh, through a mutual cousin, I met Marilyn, uh, and uh, a year and a half later, we were married. And I was working, television started, and I got in on the ground floor. Now, they say that a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a man if she's going to be with him. Did she know? I knew. I know that she knew. But uh, she was 18 years old when I met her, and I was 24, so... Is that legal? Well, we didn't get married until she was 20. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, we struggled in Toronto. It was quite tough. I mean, there was only one network, and if you didn't work at the network, you didn't work at all. And I had show, I had three shows on the air, and they were all canceled. And, and I had a little radio show that kept me going, and I decided to go off to New York and try my luck in New York. And that was back in 1955, and I pounded on a lot of doors for a lot of months. Commuting back and forth to Toronto, keeping my little radio show. Did you have anybody representing you? Did no, you? nobody would represent an unknown. I met an agent once, and he said, "He said, where are you from?" I said, "I'm from Canada." He says, "Canada? Do they have television up there?" I said, "Of course." Did he says, "Yeah, I thought they only had hockey players and Royal Canadian Mounted Police." <laughs> but, uh, so you couldn't get an agent. You couldn't no, get a manager. I knocked on doors. I knocked on doors. I knocked on doors, and and did all kinds of things to get attention. And after six months, I finally broke through and got a show. The first show I got was a show on NBC called Sky's the Limit, where I got a show emceeing that show. I had uh, met the um, I met the president of the network, 
of NBC at that time, and he said at lunch, I was writing notes back and forth trying to get an appointment. He said, I like, I like those little letters that you send me. He says, take a look at a show I have called Sky's Limit and tell me it's not doing well. Give me an analysis. Watch it for a week. So I watched it. I sent him a whole thesis on it, and he called me back in Toronto. He says, you got the job as a producer and the MC." I said, holy mackerel, just, I'll just take the MC and keep the producer. So you that, didn't want the producer credit? Well, I didn't want both at the same time. That was too much for me. So I moved down to New York. My folks, my wife and two babies were in Toronto. And after five months, I said to Marilyn, sell the house. We had a little house, sell the house. And I rented a home in Mount Vernon, New York. And I went to the airport and picked them up. Now, this is an incredible story. I went to the airport and picked them up and brought them back to Mount Vernon, 241 Pennsylvania Avenue. I still remember the address. As we drove up to the house, I said to my wife, this is your new home in your new country. It's the United States of America, and this is your new home. And we walked in, the phone was ringing. It was NBC. Your show was canceled. <laughs> Barry, I wasn't laughing. But is, is that an incredible thing? After all those months and all the time, the day that I brought him back from the airport, the show was canceled. And do you know what I did? I said, Marilyn, I saved up a few hundred dollars. We're going off to Florida for a vacation. And I remember my friend saying to me, how can you go? You're unemployed. I said, I'll be unemployed when I come back, too. <laughs> but I'm going, to, I'm going to take this time to just blow it, have the money, and start all over again. And we did. And was your wife, when that call came in, was she horrified or was she supportive and she believed in you that you would Amazingly, get she took it better than I did. She uh, very stalwart. Uh, you don't forget, she'd been working, she'd been living in Toronto for months with the kids alone, being the mother and the father to these kids while I was back in New York. And she was very brave about the whole thing, and uh, she had a lot of faith. In, but I remember what she said to me one day. I'm sitting in our home in Mount Vernon, and uh, she said, get up, go to the station, get on the train, and go to New York. I said, well, I don't have anything. She says, go and see anybody. Go visit anybody. Drop in on somebody. She says, I married you for better or worse, but not for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> And so I went in, and, and we persevered, and up and down, and up and down. We, it took it took a, about a year or so to, before I, I finally got something. But it it was not an easy climb in a new country, strange country, getting losing your show, having been all alone, but uh, perseverance and belief in yourself. Those are two very important things, obviously. So. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it.
because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryKatz.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Tell our audience the amount of money you made per show back in 1955 on these hosting gigs. I, I The show that I got uh, on Sky's the Limit, I got um, $475 a week. And for how many shows? That was for five shows a week. And they also gave me a show Saturday morning on television called Cowboy Theater, where I hosted cowboy pictures from 1920s for another $150 a week. So uh, the, the guy at NBC said, now you're making 600 bucks. So he said, enough to keep you through. I said, absolutely. I can live on $600 a week. Radio Mar- show. Radio show every, every Saturday I did four hours as the host of that. Uh, that was a lot of fun. And that went for five years. That, that paid me $181 a week. So you're raking in the bucks. No, I'm raking in the bucks. Tell me about your next project. I, I was I was sub- I was substituting at that time uh, on network shows. I substituted for Jack Barry on Twenty One, the very successful, highly successful Twenty One show, and I thought I had it made because he left the show to become a nightclub star, and I inherited the show. And after four weeks on the air, they called me in and said, "You can't do it next week because there's been a scandal." And the guy who was on the show said it was fixed, and while the district attorney is looking into this. Jack Barry has to come back from his nightclub career and front the show from now on. You can't front the show while this investigation is going on. And I thought to myself, how could this be? I, how could it be fixed? I did it every week. Now, wasn't this the one of the first shows, if not the first show, that there was ever an accusation that of it, it being fixed? That was it. It was 21. They did a movie about it and yeah. so on. And, uh, that was a, based on a quiz show. Was the, Yeah, it's a, it's a quiz show. I went in the office. During the week, they opened up the safe. They showed me the questions for pronunciation reasons. And then they put it back in the safe. And what I didn't know was that afterwards, the contestant came in and they opened the safe and showed him the questions. And they, you know, they tipped them off to, they wanted to build up these big stars by giving them the answers and building up heroes. So I lost that show. And I had a, I had another show called Keep Talking that didn't do well in the ratings. So they fired me and replaced me with Carl Reiner. And he didn't do it either. Cool. At the same time, I had this other show, and I lost that show, too. Was that the first time you ever were fired? This is the first time I was fired. And when they asked, and I don't want to mention the name of the executive of CBS, when they asked him, why did you fire him? He says, oh, him with his Canadian accent. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get fired for a lot of reasons, but my Canadian accent? Why did they fire Carl Reiner? What was the voice? The show didn't, still didn't get any ratings, so it made no difference who was heading it. You don't get ratings, you all go by the wayside. And then uh, then uh, I created a show called First Impressions that brought me out to the West Coast. Could you tell us what the nature of that show was? Well, first of all, I came out with Video Village. I signed on to a show called Video Village, which was a, a board game on, on television. People who won prizes were running up and down the streets winning prizes and so on. But at the same time, I sold First Impressions, which was a psychological show, uh, people answering free association questions with answers. And from that, you had to determine who the person was. Looking at five pictures, determine who was the mystery star that answered those particular questions. It ran for about three years. And you created that. I created that show. 
And then, of course, came the mother load, as you said before, came Let's Make It, which was a very difficult show to sell. Because well, let's go. Let's talk about how you and and talk about your partner at the time and how you came up with the idea. Obviously, everything starts at zero zero where there's nothing. So when did the first idea of the show come to you and what were the ideas and the first incarnations of it that you were creating and, and how did it come about? When Steve and I, Steve Hados and I, he was, well, I was doing Video Village, so I couldn't produce First Impressions. So I hired him to produce First Impressions for me. And then we'd meet for lunch and talk. And I told him about an idea that I had in Canada. I did a show where I worked into the audience and picked people at random and we did certain things. And he liked the idea, and he said, well, he always wanted to do a show, The Lady and the Tiger, where if you pick the right tent, you get the lady. If you pick the wrong tent, the tiger gets you, and so on. So we, we said, let's work this thing up together. And we did, and how do you present a show like that to the networks? Well, first thing we had to do was try it out on various audiences. So we would call clubs and organizations and say, can we be your entertainment tonight when your meeting is over? We'll come and we'll play this game for you. And we played the game with envelopes. And inside the envelope, it said television set or it said chicken, whatever it was. And after we did this for a few times, the reaction was so great, we said it's time for a full-scale run-through. So we hired an, a studio at NBC, and we had an audience. And again, we didn't have the prizes. All we had were the envelopes. We're doing the show. We did actually, the first time we did it was for ABC. We did the show... When the show was over, the audience was terrific. They roared. They loved the, the, the unusual show. I went back into the green room where my partner was sitting with the, the ABC people, and I was I was on air. I mean, the, the audience was screaming. I never had such a wonderful reaction. When I walked into the room, they were all sitting with long faces. I couldn't believe this, so I said to my partner, what's the matter? He looked at me and said, they don't like the show. And I said, you don't like the show. We're in this room, and they're still screaming out there. Minutes later, and the network official said, yeah, it's good today. It's good for a one-shot. What do you do the second day? Now, that's quite a comment from a guy who's supposed to evaluate shows. That people are screaming, and it's one of them. What do you, what do, you do the second day? I said, they're more of the same. What do you do the second day? He didn't buy the show. That's he didn't last very long at his job either, let me tell you. <laughs> and we did it. We did it for... Uh, uh, there are only three networks. There's no syndication, no no cable, nothing. Just three customers, and CBS was not going to buy a game show. So we're down to two customers. C ABC turned it down. NBC turned it down. We have no customers, except that a guy, at N a junior executive at NBC, went back to New York and said to his boss, "I don't care what you say. I love the show. Make a pilot. Make a pilot to humor along." We made the pilot. We made the pilot in April of 1963. And we didn't hear a word in April, May, June, July, August. Not a word. I remember a friend of mine who worked at um, Doyle Dane and Burnback, I think it was in New York, called me and said, I just saw a screening of your show. It's fantastic. I said, tell that to the network and nobody's buying it. And they didn't buy it. But in October, I got a call from the executive at NBC. We have a time period. We've tried four different shows, and they've for 13 weeks and out. Not one of them lasted. It's a terrible time period. We can't make a go of it. You can have it if you want it. <laughs> and I said, we'll take it. What was the time period? 
time we were like twelve thirty station option time, whatever it was. The terrible time we were an instant hit. Now and was it once a week or every day? It was every day, five days a week. So back then, even though there were three networks, they would put it on every day. Like because I thought I, I you know the thought process in my mind because I didn't understand syndication when I was a kid well, or regular network. networks. This was network. So this is regular network the every day. Network, right. Yeah, and so it was an instant hit. They put us up against a soap opera, which was a runaway hit, and we. We took a, 20 share points away from them, and, and uh, I mean, no matter where they put us, we were a big hit. And that changed, my life changed. That became a hit. We were there for five years. And then in contract negotiations, NBC I, dropped the ball, and NBC came and picked it up and ran away for the next seven and a half years. Let's go back here. So when did you get your agent and manager or anybody who was representing you? I didn't have an agent when we sold us big deal, but my partner. You did, did not have an agent. No, my partner had an agent, and he said, "Do you mind if he represents the show?" And this agent represented the show, never saw the show in all the years, never came to the show. Just sat in his office collecting the check, taking his ten percent, and sent us the rest. I love being an agent. Uh, my next life, I'm going to come back as an agent. <laughs> never went to see the never show. Never saw the show. He just he, the checks came to him. He took his ten percent and sent us the rest. So go back again. So you, it was a hit on NBC for five years, and, then we, and you we, said they dropped the ball. How did they drop the ball? Because they, the, the negotiations started. We were allowed to negotiate after five years. And ABC, I'll never forget this, I got a call from, I won't mention his name, the top dog at ABC, called me and said, come to New York. I want to talk to you. So I flew to New York. I walked in his office. He opened up his desk drawer, pulled out a checkbook, and he said, fill it out. Fill out the, whatever you want. That was his way of telling me he wanted the show. And I smiled at that as I knew. And now I realized that I had something. And then we told NBC. Did you fill it out? I said, we said, NBC, it's a competition now. We've got three months before the end of the contract. You've got to compete with, with this offer from ABC. And NBC just scoffed. They said, you'll never go to that network. It's so lousy. Network. You'll never go there. You'll never go there. We went. And we were there for seven and a half years. And then went to syndication and came back and came in. And we're back on CBS now. Let's just go back for a second. So you're in this negotiation back and forth. If you don't mind me asking, because you talked about how you made about $150 or less a show on your early, early shows, your first shows. When you sold Let's Make a Deal and that first week of shows came on, did they still try to keep you down to no, a certain no. amount? We, we signed a contract. We we did much much better, of course, you know. But at that time, uh, if my memory serves me right, my partner and I each took $1,500 a week. 1500 a week. And when you were renegotiating with ABC and he said, write a check, that 1500 a week went up to what? Considerably. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. You know, I did 60 Minutes one year, and Mike Douglas, Mike Wallace came to my home with CBS with a crew, and we're in my living room, and Mike Wallace said, so how much money do you make on this? And I said, I don't talk about money. He says, well, how much money would an MC of a show like that make? And I said, I don't know what he would make. And no matter what he tried to circumvent, <laughs> the, uh, you, I, I couldn't do it. I've been in those rooms where somebody said, Here's an open checkbook, write the check. It's a wonderful feeling. Fantastic uh, feeling. But the interesting thing is 
that when I came back from that meeting and I called NBC and I said, look, we just had another, uh, another offer, but we want to stay with the network. And, and, but they're, they're, you know, what they were paying us was very minimal. And I said, now that we've done our five years, we've paid our apprenticeship. It's time to get what we, what we, what we bring, the ratings we begin, what the shows following us get, the ratings that they get because of us and so on. And the head of the network at that time scoffed at me. And uh, I remember the negotiations came down to a point. And I remember when the negotiator for the network came out here to meet with our agent. And he he said to me at the meeting, he said, you're not going to go to that third network. I mean, they're, they're, they're nowhere. They're for NBC. They're a third network. And I, I said, well, if the... Uh, if your wife isn't treating you well, the lady across the street starts to look a lot better to you. <laughs> and we went and we, of course, we doubled our salary and uh, we were very hit seven and a half years. At that point, something happened, which uh, we, we could talk for hours about why the show went off the air. But that's it for a whole different time. And a different climate, which we, you and I will make an appointment someday to talk about that. I don't want to talk about it today. But it went under very bad circumstances. It went off the air. We then went back into syndication. And uh, after several years, uh, a network official at CBS called and said, I love your show. I want to bring it back on CBS. And that was a few years ago. And it's a hit today. We've, with Wayne Brady hosting, right? With Wayne Brady. I hired Wayne Brady. Do you want a cute story about Wayne Brady? I would love it. We we tested 40 different MCs for that show. I knew you tested a lot. I didn't know you tested 40. Now, Wayne Brady normally will not test for a show. Well, Wayne Brady was, at the time, Wayne Brady was in Vegas. And I told my daughter, I said, we've tested every guy that has a, a client to send it up to us. And they've been t they tested about 15 of them when I wasn't around. And then I was around for about 20 minutes. We got a studio with an audience and so on. And it just wasn't clicking. So my daughter said, try Wayne Brady. And I, to be frank with you, didn't know who Wayne Brady was. She said, take a look at the show. Whose line is it anyway? And I did and looked good. So I called him in Las Vegas. I said, Wayne, you want to come in and talk to me? He said, okay. So we had the network people. And, and myself and Wayne came and had lunch at my home. And we sat there. I said, Wayne, do you know the show? He says, yeah, I know the show. I said, do you like the show? He says, I love the show. I said, would you like to do the show? He said, yes, I would. I said, the most important thing is, can you do the show? It's a very difficult show to do. He says, I think I can. I said, there's only one question left now. Do I think you can do the show? And the way to prove that is to do a pilot. He did the pilot. came out fine. We hired him on the spot. And he's been a hit. Tell me three people that were close to getting that job that you love, but they just, for some reason, you didn't think they were the right fit. It wasn't because they weren't talented, but they were just great, but they just weren't what you thought would be right for the brand. Barry, I'll tell you an honest-to-goodness statement. If there were three people close enough, one of them would have had the job before I called Wayne. None of them was clicking. Not one of the people. Don't forget, it's a tremendously difficult show. There's no script. The script is all in your head. You know where the prizes are. You know what the the game elements are going to be. And you've got to put it all together with charm and finesse, understanding and so on, and pace and warmth. 
it's a difficult job to do. And none of these people who tried out could do it. They they were beyond their depth. They all, wanted, they all wanted a script somehow. They wanted, they wanted a crutch to lean on. You're all on your own there. Now, we're not going to go into the details of why it went off the air, so I promised you that I would not talk about that out of honoring you here. I will tell you sometime. But I, what I would like to see if you'll share with me, because one of the most important things for our audience is how to deal with the getting your legs broke and how to deal with having that gut punch and how to how to take it out. There was one thing that you mentioned early on in this interview where you go into Mount Vernon, you bring your family down from Canada, the phone rings, your show is canceled, and what did you do in the face of that disaster? You take a vacation with the money you have in the bank. That's right. So you've proven that you look at adversity and you sort of laugh at it and... Or cry, with have, it. <laughs> or cry with it. So just, you don't have to go into the details. I promised you that. But I just want to know how you dealt with the adversity well, of that situation when, when, and how you moved forward and got past it. When I got the notice that they were canceling the show, I was furious. Because the show had been such a hit. But they manipulated certain things that I can't go into right now that made it look like it wasn't doing so well. And, so I they, they I got notice that they're going to cast the show. I said I demand a meeting in New York with all the executives there. I demand it, and I took my lawyer, not Asia, took my lawyer. And we flew into New York and came to this meeting. I'm sitting there with all these guys that it looked like Judgment at Nuremberg. They're all sitting there looking at me, ready to kill. And I took them on, and every point they brought up, I knocked down. Every point I knocked, I made them look terrible. We walk out of the room, my lawyer said to me, he says, well, you won the battle, but you lost the war. I said, I knew I lost the war when I got on the plane, but I wanted my time. I wanted my time to be able to tell them how I felt about these things and to show them how wrong they were. Not that it made any difference. They backtracked and said, well, why don't we try something else in place of that? Give me another show and we'll play it. And nothing happened, nothing happened. It was an episode that uh, was not another happy episode of my life. You know, I always say to anybody who listens, as your parents probably said to you long ago, it's always darkest before the dawn. So people, you know, these bad things that happen bring you to a greater situation. So technically speaking, you should send ABC a fruit basket because the next deal you had was wonderful. And then the syndication, and then the network. But uh, so you wouldn't have had that syndicated you deal. You know, I, I don't, I don't relish. The idea that we made it, made it big after having lost it over there, you you don't there's no there's no uh, there's no thrill about winning the battle afterwards. I wanted to win the battle while I was there. I was very successful for many many years. We were on the air for twelve years, top of the show. They manipulated the ratings and and the the time periods and so on. Uh, the person who took it off the air didn't do a good job. He was not a smart man. Uh, that's a story I won't get into. But I had no... I don't feel like sitting up there and gloating afterwards. I'm just happy that we did it. All the people who worked for me who did it. The cast that I have now did it. Wayne Brady did it. Everybody at Fremantle, my partner, is happy about it. CBS is happy about it. That's all that matters. 
So if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about the beginnings of the show and, and, and the trajectory of the show, because there were certain people in the show that you made stars. My announcer, Jay Stewart. Jay Stewart. My model, Carol Merrill. And Carol Merrill. Where did you find them, and what was the casting process like for both of them? Well, uh, Jay Stewart was well-known in the town. He was doing a show, and uh, we asked him if he would like to come. We had somebody else in mind first, but then somebody said, Jay's available. We brought him in. It was a great move. And then one day we were auditioning models. And my partner came into my office and said, I want you to look at a piece of tape we have on this young girl who's trying out for the show. And it was Carol Merrill. And I think at that time she was about 22 or 23 years old. And as soon as I saw her on the show, I saw that's the girl for us. And she stayed with us for about, I guess, the first 12 years or so. And... Uh, then when she when she moved to Hawaii, we had to get somebody else, and we had to replace her. And we brought her back for the 50th anniversary show. She flew in from Hawaii. To we, those who were still alive, we were on that 50th anniversary show last year. And uh, she looks fine, and she's very happy in Hawaii. Jay Stewart died many, many years ago. Not too many of the originals are still left. My partner's gone. Jay's gone. The three writers we had on the show are gone. Only the good die young. Old guys like me, old guys like me, keep on. Something tells me that that's the first time you've lied to me during this interview. <laughs> um, do you consider yourself a good man? I, I don't evaluate myself. I let others evaluate me, but I know that what I do is what I want to do is what I do. The, the, my family comes first. My charity work comes second, and television comes third. But it was television that gave me the opportunity to do all that charity work. And because over the years, I raised over a billion dollars for charity. This is my legacy. This is my legacy for my children and for my friends. That's what is important. As my mother would say, that's important. That's important. My father, when he was living in Palm Springs, a man would say to him at poolside, gee, your son is a television star. And my father said, don't talk to me about my television star, son. Tell me about the, my, the mensch. That's what's important. Over a billion dollars that's right. for charity. And still doing it. It's incredible. But that's that's great. Look at look at what we've accomplished. So I'm not going to say I'm a good man. I'm going to say that I'm happy with what I did. I'm happy with what I did. Well, I gesture to say that uh, millions of people are happy with what you did. And I think of you, and I think as I'm sitting across from you, these are the things that are going through my mind now, the memories of things in Longmeadow, Massachusetts, that I would hear, and I would think to myself, wow, I wonder what it's like to be there. While you were doing things like that when I was your age, back in Winnipeg, Canada, with, before television days, there was radio. And I would sit and listen to the radio, and I would listen to Bob Hope, and I would listen to Eddie Cantor, and I would listen to all the shows, and that's exactly the stuff that I liked. I'd like to do that, too. And you did it, and I did it. It's incredible. I think to myself, 
Spiegel Catalog, Chicago, Illinois, 60609. <laughs> I always remember that. Dicker and Dicker of, of Beverly, Beverly Hills. Hills. I'm Beverly... thinking to myself, I've never seen a Dicker and Dicker in Beverly Hills in my life. Well, they don't exist anymore, but but Mac Dicker just loved it. I used to, I used to sing it. I said, Dicker and Dicker of Beverly Hills. <laughs> and he said, people come into my furrier, please. And they sing that song all the time. <laughs> So I'm going to mention some people's names or certain circumstances or things, and I want you to tell me uh, the first thing that comes into your mind, if you don't mind. Jay Stewart. Jay Stewart, wonderful roly-poly guy, uh, the happiest guy on camera, loved working, loved being on camera, off camera, very troubled man. Amazing how it's a laugh, clown, laugh. He was the clown. When he put on the clown paint, he was the best entertainer. As soon as he got off the paint, he was crying. He had a very sad life. But uh, so he oh, suffered from depression. He suffered from depression, but he was a he was a he was a part of the cast. We were such a warm, wonderful cast. Carol and and uh, Jay and the G, the director and the producer. We we had a wonderful family, and uh, and we lost Jay. It was a, when we lost Jay. I did the eulogy at his funeral, and I accused the industry of turning their back on him because when we went off the air, he had to find himself another job, and he got fired after that job after a few weeks, and it was played heavily on him. And I remember he came into my office, and he said, I walk through the halls of the network, and nobody knows me. Nobody says hello to me anymore. I have 40 years in the business, and I'm nobody. He was so depressed. And I said to them, there's a line... In one of the plays, where the line was, the, the widow was saying to people at the funeral, to this man, their husband, attention must be paid. Attention must be paid. He's a good man. But no one's paying attention to Jay. And it broke my heart. But he was a good guy. Now, you obviously, with the passing of Robin Williams... A spotlight shines on depression and mental illness. But today, even though people lose the battle, there's the most advanced doctors, the most advanced medication. Back when you were doing Let's Make a Deal, did anyone even understand what depression and mental illness was? I mean, these people have to go without medication or anything and they just had to suffer through it? I don't know. I don't know. I can't tell you what advances have been made or if any advances have been made. Uh, certainly not enough to to save a few of our friends. But um, depression is, is a big question mark. If, there, if somebody had the answers, it would have helped a lot of people. Carol Merrill. Carol Merrill, uh, lovely girl, wonderful on the set. No temperament. Uh, the stagehands loved her so much that they had her own director's chair for her with her name on it, and they would run and get her a Coca-Cola, anything, anything she wanted. And she was a producer on the set. If anything went wrong, she could correct it by moving a car over or moving a door. So it, it, just a wonderful performer. And uh, she's still, she's still very happy. To, went over to Hawaii, lives there. NBC. A network. <laughs> ABC. Also. 
But I must tell you that I, I you know, there are different personnel all the time. The people who were there were not there then, and the people then they're not there now. And so there were certain people who believed in me and certain people who left. Uh, but the, the current people at CBS, I, I love them not only because they put my show on there, but they called me. I didn't go soliciting CBS. They called me and said, I think that show should come back, and I think we want that show. And when I put the show on there, the, the person who was the head of, of CBS took me out to lunch and said, we're not in this for the short run. We're in this for the long haul. We're not going to look at the first radio. We're in it for the long haul. That's a network official who believes in something and will work with you. And as a result, we had five years of tremendous success so far. Flip Wilson. I did a Flip Wilson show. A very funny show where he played, uh, what was the character? The one of the characters? Geraldine. Geraldine, played, Geraldine was a contestant on Let's Make a Deal on that show. Hysterical. Hysterical. Funny guy. Love Boat. Love Boat. I, I was doing what I remember with Love Boat. We're, we're doing Love Boat, and uh, I get a call on the set that my daughter, Joanne, has gone into labor with my first grandchild. Wow. And I knew where she was, the hospital she was, and my call wasn't until 6 o'clock in the evening, from in the morning. My scene is not coming up. So I jumped in the car, and I went over the network to the hospital and saw the birth of my grandson, and I came back home, and I came in about 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, and the producer standing says, where were you? Where were you? You weren't here. We needed your scene. I said, the scene was until 6 o'clock. Now we changed our mind. Really? He says, yeah. I said, you weren't here. I said, well, I was supposed to be here. Well, you'll never work for me again. He said, <laughs> I said, really? I really feel sorry. <laughs> I work for him again. I think he's a doorman at a restaurant today. <laughs> Dean Martin. Lots of fun. Dean Martin and I used to go and watch Little League games together. His son, Dino, and my son played in the same Little League team. And we used to sit in the stands together. But I love Dean. Dean would say, I love that show of yours, baby. He says, I don't care about you so much, but that broad with the legs in front of the curtain, I like her. <laughs> <laughs> he was a lot of fun. Jack Klugman. Jack was on one of my specials, and we were also friends. We went to the racetrack together. And Jack, Jack was a, he was a, he was a, he was a lot of Jack had a very troubled youth. He got in with a bunch of gamblers early in his youth, and I had him on a special gamblers special that I did one year on ABC. And he he had to leave town. He they were after him. He wasn't paying his debt, and so it took a long time to pay up his debts. But he. Uh, he was a good actor. He was a fine actor. At the racetrack, he was crazy. He, he was the kind of guy that bid on every horse in the race because he knew one of them would have to win. <laughs> <laughs> Tony Randall. Exactly as he was on the air. That's the way he was off the air. He'd sit in his dressing room, and all of a sudden he'd come out of the dressing room and yelled at the top of his voice, Someone in this studio is smoking! He was, he was crazy about smoking. <laughs> And he'd, write to, he'd go through the whole studio to find out who was smoking a cigarette and put on a cigarette. <laughs> but a nice man. 
Love, love American style. My wife wrote an episode of Love American Style that starred me. Did you know that? No. Marilyn's a writer. And she She's an me. Emmy award-winning uh, executive producer, yeah, right? Yeah, that was not for that. She ordered for something. She got that for uh, a Do You Remember Love, a story yeah. about Alzheimer's. But she wrote this episode of Love American Style, and it's a story about this family where the husband is always doing a benefit, and the wife can never seem to get him at home. Does it sound normal? <laughs> I'm always doing a benefit. That was the story. Uh, love American style. Your wife, Marilyn. Yeah. 67 years of marriage. Incredible. Yeah. Do you know anyone in your life that's been married 67 years? Some of my friends. <laughs> I guess those are the friends I know, old like we are. But uh, Marilyn, when I met Marilyn, she was uh, 20 years old. She was 18 years old. We got married at 20. She was an actress on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. She was a, an ingenue. And uh, I remember the, my cousin, we had a mutual cousin who introduced me. And uh, I, I, I fell in love with this 18-year-old girl. And we got married when she was 20, and I was uh, just turned 26. And we had tough, tough times struggling, trying to make it. We lived in a man's house in one room. A guy gave us a room in his house. That's where we lived. We were first married. And uh, But when you're first married, you, you could live in a shoebox, you know. And uh, then we had our first child, and then our second child. And then I sold a, I sold a show to uh, Colgate Palmolive, Who Am I?, which ran for many, many years, a radio syndicated show. And then uh, television started, and as I told you before, I had three shows on the air. They were all canceled over one summer. I spent a whole year trying to find out why and what's next, so I went off to New York, and, and you know what happened after that. Wayne Brady. Very talented man. Very talented man. He sings, he acts, he does comedy. He's having the time of his life doing Let's Make a Deal. Let's Make a Deal. Very tough show to sell because it was so unusual. And as I told you, Willie had three possible customers, and one one customer didn't buy game shows, and the other two turned it down until we uh, we got one person who had insisted on a pilot. But let's make it was unusual because you don't have pre-selected contestants on a stage answering questions. They're picked at random, and uh, they don't have to answer the questions. They just have to play a game. And it... It was unusual, but it, it, it's, it's just as hot today as it was then. All of the stories that happened to you on Let's Make a Deal, 4,700 episodes or whatever it was, and all of your stories were drowning in the ocean, and you can only save one, which is the greatest holy shit moment story of the whole show. It could be behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, on camera. The most memorable thing that would be the highlight chapter of your book. Well, I'll, preface it, I'll preface it by saying that since it won't be what you're expecting, but I've I've had cases where uh, a, a grandmother from Nebraska was so excited that she picked me up and threw me over her shoulder, <laughs> <laughs> like a line. She was like a linebacker. She picked me, threw me, and I'm dangling over her over her shoulder. Uh, I was kissed by a few men on the show. Uh, I mean, th that was exciting. I, I had I had a contestant on the show who came and was wearing a diaphanous Scheherazade outfit that under the hot lights you could see Pittsburgh. And uh, I mean, crazy things like that happen. Door <laughs> doors opening, 
uh, when they shouldn't open and elephants running down the stage and getting out of the studio and all kinds of things happened. But the most unusual thing was not one of those. A woman came on the show. Uh, I didn't pick her, but when the show was over, one of my staff said, you should see what that woman came to trade on the show. And she was sitting there, and I came, and she was sitting with, in, in on her lap was a mock-up of the set of Let's Make a Deal with three doors. And she, in front of her, she had three buttons. And she pressed button number one, and door number one opens up, and a little multi-hall walks out and turns around and walks back in the door. <laughs> door number two, a little Jay Stewart comes out, and down with three, a little Carol Merrill walks out. And I said, this is fantastic. She said, my husband's an electrical engineer, and he made this thing. And I said, oh, I... I said, you know, I don't pick people for what they bring, but it, it's with all this trouble. She says, oh, no, I don't care. I'll, I'll have it at home. It'll be a souvenir. I said, I'd like to buy it from you. She says, no, I wouldn't give it up. But it was the most unusual thing I ever saw in my life. She wouldn't sell it. No, it, it, her husband went to great things. But it's a mock above the set. It's a little let's make a deal set. But so I, that was the most unusual thing. Crazy costumes, crazy people. <laughs> people knocked me down, jumped on me, knocked me down, had wearing boxers. The boxer hit me under the nose, and <laughs> pins would stick me, and I would hit a concussion uh, because people get very excited. You know, you you point your finger at somebody, and say you're next. They don't know who they are or where they are. How in the world did you get or your producers get two hundred people? to dress in original outfits every day. That's a thousand people a week coming in these crazy outfits. Do you know that there was a three-year wait for tickets at one time? Three-year three wait, wait for tickets. And people knew they were coming to the show, so they got dressed at home. They came in their various costumes, Phyllis Diller lookalikes and Frankenstein and Dracula and policemen and firemen and pirates. and They, they all had more fun getting dressed to come to the show. They, that was half the fun. I imagine you had a cancellation line where every day there were people waiting in line as these crazy people. They could only, if you only could come if you had a ticket. See, so there was, there was no waiting. Whatever tickets were available, that's how many people came to the show. Your biggest disappointment in show business. Oh, what would that be? My disappointment in show business. You know, I've never been asked that question, so I have to think for a minute. Uh, disappointment. Disappointment when your show was canceled. I've had a few shows canceled on me. I think the biggest disappointment for me was when my daughter's show was canceled. When when Joanna, my daughter Joanna Gleason, is a Broadway star, she's done twelve or thirteen Broadway shows. She's the one that she was the Tony Award winner, you know. But when we went to see her in Nick and Nora, she was playing Nora. The it was going to be amazing. Arthur Lawrence wrote and directed Nick and Nora, the Thin Man. It's going to be the biggest show she did. It lasted six days. And when that, I, the biggest disappointment was when I went to see the show, Marilyn and I flew in to see the show, and 15 minutes into the show, I turned to Marilyn and said, it ain't going to make it. I could sense it right there. They had the wrong approach to the whole thing. That was a terrible disappointment. When your kid gets a show canceled after working on it for a year, for one year, it lasts six days. That's harder to take than when your own show is canceled. Interesting. Your proudest moment professionally. I think the proudest moment professionally had to be Let's Make a Deal because when we got our first ratings, 
in that terrible time spot that they put us on after all the things that we went through. And they finally threw us a bone and said, here, you can have this terrible time spot. And the, the ratings came out and we were hit. And um, Steve and I sat down, looked at each other and said, well, here we are. All the ads were, all were against us. Three customers, two didn't want us. The other one did. We had to convince them to put on a, a pilot after months, and then they wouldn't pick up the show. And they put us in a lousy time period, and then we he came through. It's like whirl away coming from last place and winning the Santa Anita Free Leagues. Those are proud moments. All right, last question. What advice do you have for the young executive or the young creative person or the young performer who's living at home or living in a one-room place in a boarding house somewhere and has the vision to think that they can make it, but how do they get to the next level and have the kind of career that you've had? What well, advice would you have for them? You can imagine that over the years, I've had a lot of kids come to see me trying to get into the business, and a lot of them have been rejected. I said, first of all, you have to understand that the name of the game in this business is rejection. Rejection is that you live with that in, in television, radio, television. I don't know too many people have got it overnight success. It took me 20 years to be an overnight success. The thing is this. Here's the, the, the rule of thumb. If you have talent, hoping that you believe in yourself that you have talent, you have to have the courage, the guts, to stick it out through all rejection until that lucky moment comes when somebody recognizes it. But that moment won't come if you haven't got the endurance, if you haven't got the guts to stick it out. Don't take no for an answer. You've got to believe in yourself and stick it out. How many times have I... When I was walking streets in New York looking for work, a guy would say to me, you'll never make it with a name like Monty. Well, where did that come from? What's that got to do with my talent? But these are the kind of things that would drive you down. No, no, it's no good. I don't like this. You're from Canada. They don't know anything. I mean, you walk. It took me the longest time. I told one cute story for you. I finally get an interview with a guy who was the producer of Name That Tune. Yes. He was a band leader. I can name that tune in X yeah. amount of notes. So he says, you'll come and meet me at my home, in my apartment on Park Avenue. So I go to his home, and he's sitting down, and he's having lunch. And I'm sitting here, and he's having lunch there. He doesn't offer me lunch. <laughs> He's eating soup. Eating soup. He ate his whole darn lunch, and I'm talking. My lunch was always a thank you for coming. <laughs> I did all the time. He didn't say a word to me. He didn't say goodbye, hello. And that was the end of it. Not only did he not offer me a job, but he didn't even offer me lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you can get so many different forms of rejection. People, it, well, I would go to try to get an appointment in New York. I think I would make 50 phone calls a week, and maybe I'd get one appointment. And then you go to have the appointment, the guy would say, and, and uh, who's calling? I'd say, Monty Hall. Oh, you're from Montreal. No, 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 Monty Hall. <laughs> oh, okay, Marty. Marty, what is it, Marty? You, you're nothing. You have, to, you have to survive all those things. You've got to survive all those things. Because the race is not only to the swiftest. It's the one who's got the guts to be the swiftest. It's lasted out. That's the advice. Well... Monty Hall, this has been one of the greatest moments in time of my life. Great, and great, I'm Barry. Very, very honored that you came here, and thank you so, so and much. And one more thing, Barry. 
we're up here on the 24th floor. <laughs> yes. Don't be ever so despondent that you jump because it's a long way down. Yes, it is a long way down. Some days, I'm sure many of us think about taking a long run up to that plate glass window and just smashing through and going My down. My advice is get yourself a basement apartment. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get myself a basement apartment office. All right. Well, thank you again. And as always, this is Barry Katz for Industry Standard. If you like the show, please tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.